everyone. Welcome to What Are You Reading? I'm Nick Dosal, and I'm joined by my best friend, Alex Withrow. How you doing there, Frederick Chilton? <laughs> you did it! Round of applause. <laughs> Round of applause. You did it. You did it. Oh, I'm so proud of you, Frederick Chilton. He ate his tongue. Oh, what a shithead he is. That was a good one. I didn't know what you were going to say. <laughs> Damn right. Uh, we're doing things a little differently today because we're going to be talking about a lot of books. We're going to be talking about movies, too, but... A lot of books, so thank you for that uh, lovely introduction there. Um, I've been reading, you know? I've been reading a lot. We reference it a lot on the podcast. I don't, or we, I do. I just leave I it don't read. to conversations. <laughs> yes, you do. But I used to read a lot as a kid. My mom always encouraged me to read because she knew I loved to write. And she goes, your reading is only going to make your writing better. So just read, read, read. Read whatever the hell you want. So she'd always encourage me to go to the classics. Uh, a habit I departed with very, very quickly, and I'm starting to pick that back up too, but there was one book, and this is one of the books we're going to talk about today, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written by Quentin Tarantino, and I'm like, Ooh. I have to read this. Like, I bought it, you know, he released it in paperback first and only, like a beach paperback. You got, you sent me a copy, I read it, like, immediately, I digested it so fast, and it's long, and then something that I've discovered, I'd never done this before is that I got into audiobooks because like I love podcasts. I'm listening to podcasts all the time. I'm trying to listen to some to make hours better, you know, see what everyone's talking about. I don't just listen to movie podcasts though. And what I found was I'm like occasionally getting to the end of my podcast queue and then listening to shit that I don't even care about. Like this isn't, this doesn't really like matter to me. I'm not interested in this topic. And then I go, why have you never experimented with audiobooks? Like, yes, Upfront, it is not the same as reading. I fully admit that. Absolutely. Especially yeah. if you're reading fiction and you haven't read that actual novel, someone else is dictating tone there. You know, I, I get, I hear all of those arguments and I agree, but, but I am receiving the information. I am getting the story. I'm receiving it. And I suppose at this point in my life, I'm not really concerned, especially with a lot of the books we're going to talk about today, like with sitting down and reading that text, because I have time for audiobooks. I do a lot of random shit. I yeah. listen to them when I work out. So I have time for that because I'm always doing something else, something, you know, driving, whatever it is. A novel is different. That's what makes reading an actual book so damn cool because you are all encompassed in it. You can't be doing anything else. Maybe you can like be walking slowly on a treadmill. I, I don't know how people do that, but usually that book has you. So some of what we're going to talk about today, I've read the book for like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I read that text and then I listened to the audiobook because Jennifer Jason Lee does it and it's a really good listen. So for some of these books, I've done both. I've just, I've read the novel and then listened to the audiobooks. Some are just audiobooks, some are just books. But once I listened to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, not read it, but listened to it, I went, oh, what if I went and just either listened to or read a lot of the books that my favorite movies are based on? So that's what we're talking about today. Every book we're going to reference was either adapted into a movie or it was adapted from a movie in some very rare circumstances like novelizations. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for instance, that movie came first yep. and then he turned it into a novelization. So we're going to talk about some of those. And in the case of Heat 2, which is probably the first thing we're going to talk about today, that is an incredibly rare, it's a novel sequel based on a movie because there's no Heat book. It's just Heat 2, the book. And that's 
you know, really cool. But yeah, by that's the way to introduce all of this. And I'm going to probably be doing most of the talking because I am a nerd and been doing a lot of reading, but you've definitely read some of these too. So you're going to chime in because this is something, you know, we've talked a lot about how like we did our favorite movies based on plays. So we talk about adaptations and stuff, but it's going to be cool to, you know, kind of focus more on the text today as opposed to the movies are based on. That's all. And I can't wait to start talking about Heat 2 because I love reading. Mm -hmm. I'm just terrible at it. I get it. It takes me a long time. There's not dyslexia or anything like that or some of like the, the um anything like attention. It's just, it's just very slow. Mm-hmm. It's just poor reading habits really is what it is. But when I'm reading, what I'm getting from that experience is better than any type of movie almost because yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're linked into it. And I also can't go for like too many chapters. And I'm currently, funny enough, the book that I'm reading right now is like a 1,000 page book. So I just decided <laughs> to go right into the deep end. It's been taking me a year. But I have not been excited for a book and I can't even tell you how long. So the fact that we're starting out talking about Heat 2, I want to read this book so badly. Once we did our Heat podcast episode, yeah, when you told me that there was a book coming out, I was chomping at the bit. So this will be the next book that I read. But tell me why it should or shouldn't be the next book I read. Great way to start the discussion here. And I just want to say up top, like, I'm not spoiling any of these books, even if they are based on famous movies that a lot of us have seen. I'm still not, I'm not really going to go into like, here's a difference between book like a little bit, but I'm not, you know, I'm not here to ruin Heat 2, which came out like three, four weeks ago. That's, that would be shitty. But Heat 2 is written by Michael Mann and Megan Gardner, and it is a sequel, direct sequel and a direct prequel to the film Heat. Now, long book, but a incredibly easy read. So it's like 480 pages. Half the book is set in 1988 and then half is set post the events in the film. And that takes us up to the year 2000. And it jumps back and forth. It's not like part one, you know, the first 240 pages are in 1988. And it's not that clear. He's, they're very careful about when it cuts back and forth between the two. And in the 88 storyline, again, no spoilers here, but Neil McCauley, who Robert De Niro played, He's featured heavily along with Hannah, who Al Pacino played, and other characters that we know from Heat. The stories are different. It adds a lot of context for Heat, particularly like, why does Neil McCauley fall for Amy Brenneman's character so quickly? That context is in Heat 2, which I really appreciated. This first part of Heat 2 also features the main villain is a sick fuck who rivals Wayne Grow in terms of like Madman Carnage. Remember Wayne Grow from Heat, Nick? Remember the oh, you mean Jesse James? Him? Yeah, Jesse James. <laughs> the, uh, the sequel storyline, is the main character of that is Chris Hairless, who Val Kilmer played in the film. And it also features Hannah in a different narrative in 2000. So here's the bottom line. If you love the movie Heat, you will love this book. If you aren't a big reader, but you're listening to this podcast, I would highly encourage you to consider buying the audiobook because it was a really fun listen. Now. The narrator definitely puts some character work into it in the way he's speaking, his inflection of the way different characters talk, but it is a really fun listen. I bought it, so I read it first and then listened to it and listened to it second. So I like I was able to digest it in every single way I could. You know, the book moves, it is not confusing. It 
absolutely reads like it is written by Michael Mann. It can get very technical, but never in a way that's like never in a way that's isolating. And if what he's saying is true and that he wants to turn this into a movie, it will make for one hell of a movie. Wow. Obviously, the biggest issue there is like, how do you it, he's he just has to like explain to the audience whether on a press tour or beforehand like hey just you know this is a Christian hairless and Han- detective hannah story but i val kilmer and al pacino can't play those characters everyone knows that right like okay but i i mean god it would just make for such a good movie it has amazing set pieces that was kind of the challenge like the shootout and heat everyone who watches that goes holy shit it's one of the best shootouts one of the best action scenes in any movie ever can that be as effective or one half as effective in written form? And he actually does a good job of like describing the robbery in Heat 2, but then he has other set pieces that are like thrilling in Heat 2 that you get, you can, you're there, like you can envision it, you can see it. It's really, really cool. So again, just highly recommend Heat 2 either in book form or audiobook form because it, if you're a fan of the movie, it's just. It's everything I could have possibly wanted. And all the characters, like, it's so good to see all them again. It's so good. Do you think that with uh, something like the technology that Scorsese used in The Irishman, they could do something like that with Heat 2? I thought about that. You'd have to use different actors. Because Val, I mean, yeah. you know, if you saw Top Gun Maverick, like, Val Kilmer can't be out yeah, using guns be. and stuff. Neither can Al Pacino. Like, out. Al- you know, what he had to do, what Al Pacino had to do in The Irishman as Jimmy Hoffa, he wasn't out there like running around with semi-automatic weapons trying to chase bad guys. It, there's a physicality to it that these guys just don't have. Now, whether or not the technology is there and they get like, you know, Chris Hemsworth to play Chris Shaharless, but they do stuff to his face to make him look like Val Kilmer. Like, sure. I, I, I don't know. The thing, though, this is not this would not be a cheap movie at all. If he does both parts, it'd be cool as shit to see like the heat prequel and then the heat sequel. So we have three movies that, I mean, that would be awesome, but it, I'm, I was reading this going, holy shit, like this would not be cheap, but you know, that's, we're going to talk about a lot of movies that were based on books and you have to cut stuff out for cost reasons, for any number of reasons. So yeah, that's a, just a brief capsule review of heat Two. You know, Michael Mann's been going on some podcasts, doing a bit of a press tour and, it really shows his strength as an author, too, because it was just a really, really fun read. So if, you know, he's not directing as many movies now, he's in production on his Ferrari movie, which is awesome. But I hope that if he isn't, you know, directing movies at this fast of a clip that he he considers writing more, writing more novels. Well, speaking of sequels, this is one that I can't <laughs> wait to hear you talk about. Yes. Tracy Flick Can't Win by Tom Parada. This is a sequel to the book Election. I do not know if a movie is going to be made about this, but I had never read Election, and I heard that this book was coming out, so I read Election very quickly, also written by Tom Parada. That is what the book, that is what the movie, Alexander Payne's movie, is based on. Election is a very fun book, and Tracy Flick Can't Win matches it perfectly. 272 pages, breezes by, I read it in two sittings, and it was reading election and then this, it just made for a few great days of vacation reading. That's what I was doing. There are things in election in the book and in the movie that were taken as a joke at the time. And the, you talk about, they don't age well, like they do not age well. What Reese Witherspoon's character has gone through with a teacher. And this sequel acknowledges that openly. This sequel was written in the era of me too. And I liked that a lot, a whole lot. And the Tracy Flick can't win. It has a great ending, like makes everything really, really worth it. So 
Yeah, the first few ones we're talking about here are kind of novel sequels, either like this, like Heat 2 is it's based on a movie, so that's just a really weird circumstance. Tracy Flick Can't Win is based on the book collection, and then the next one we're going to talk about is also one that has not been adapted into a movie, but it's based on, it's a sequel to a movie. And tell me what that is, because I do not know what this Show of Evil is. So Show of Evil, written by William Dell in 1995, is a sequel to his book Primal Fear, which is turned into a movie starring Edward Norton and Richard Gere. And I'm definitely not going to say a lot about this, because Primal Fear, first of all, (laughs) I just like put on Primal Fear one night because I hadn't seen it in a while, and that movie is just amazing. Like, I love that movie so much. Like, Laura Linney's just smoking everywhere. (laughs) It's so 90s. One of my favorite Richard Gears. But if you've seen Primal Fear, you remember the way it ends, and that's all I'm going to say. And I had no idea. I saw in the credits it said it was based on a book, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'll read that. And then when I'm researching the book, I go, oh, he made a trilogy. I haven't read the third one, but I was like, oh, there's a trilogy of, okay, this is cool. So I read Show of Evil, and it's not, I just wanted to see where the characters went. That's all, based on the end of Primal Fear. Not the best book, but it felt worth mentioning here because maybe some people don't know that that story does continue. After the movie Primal Fear is over, those characters go other places, at least according to this author. So that's just kind of cool. That's cool. Hard book to find, though. The next one a lot of people are going to be familiar with. <laughs> Including myself. Yes. This is, uh, this, I, re- I read this book when I was a kid. So that Whoa. goes to show you what <laughs> I was watching and reading when I was a child. And that is The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. Yes, and I started with Red Dragon slash Manhunter. I did that first, like that, the book and the movie I watched both. Because that's another thing, when I'm done, you know, I've seen Silence of the Lambs so many times, but it's a lot of fun to read the book and then immediately go watch the movie. And I've been doing that a lot, just as my fun movie rewatches. So, I mean, what Michael Mann did with Manhunter slash Red Dragon is really cool, because it's a completely, like... It's so cool to see two different directors like Michael Mann and Jonathan Demi handle the same author because those are two very stylistically different, you know, movies. But I mean, Silence of the Lambs just, it's a very entertaining book. I was so, again, this probably isn't surprising to a lot of people, but I was so happy by how quickly it read. It read so easily. I don't know if it would have been good to, you know, I saw the movie as a kid, but reading it as a kid must have like terrified you because you you stay with a book a lot longer than a movie, you know, movies two hours. Yeah. And the thing, I had seen the movie, so I knew what the content was. That helps. So, um, but there were things that I, I remember having to put the book down. Yeah. And just being like, okay, all right, I'll have to pick this up in a little bit. But I had the context of it, so it didn't bother me in that way. Right. Yeah, you you receive that imagery in such a specific way when you're reading it as opposed to seeing it on a screen. Yeah, and what's cool about like starting with Red Dragon, the book, you know, he's you see which characters he's barely referencing in like Silence of the Lambs, like characters who were also in Red Dragon. I like that. Er, and then some of them become like side characters in Red Dragon are now much more prominent in Silence of the Lambs, like Jack Crawford, the FBI director and all that. I just, I love that stuff. But yeah, this, these books are very easy to read and it seems, they seemed very ripe just to be adapted into very thrilling movies, which they both were. So that's cool. So those were my, those are my novel sequels. Those are like the kind of, the very rarest type, like he too is just very rare, a book sequel from a movie. But now we're going to go into 
another rare type of adaptation. And that's when that's when the movie comes first and then a book is written based on that. Now, a few that I have here are cheats because they were written along kind of with the filmmaker at the exact same time as the movie. But like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the best example here of yeah. a director going, I'm going to turn my own movie into a novel so that everything I wanted to say in the movie, but you know, I didn't want to make a four hour movie. So here it all is in the novel. And it was great. But before we get into that, like novelizations are very popular with science fiction, like Alien, Braveheart, Almost every Star Wars movie, almost famous. Cameron Crowe wrote a novelization of it after the movie. I haven't read that, but just to give you know a little context. But yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know you haven't read it yet. And again, no spoilers here. I'm not going to do it, but I know you're curious to read this one. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is this is my second favorite movie of all time. So I guess the question that I have about it is for being such a fan of the movie, mm-hmm. knowing it frame for frame, beat for beat. What is the book going to, is that going to enhance my experience with the movie or is it going to, can I separate? Well, it depends what you're looking for. Like there's definitely a separation there, but you are going to, here's how I like to say it. Damn near any single question you have about the content of the movie, you will have an answer to when you read the book. And that's not in a way where like it leaves you because it gives you everything. It leaves you with nothing. It's not that at all. It's just you get to know so much more about who Cliff Booth is as a person. Yeah. Because in the movie, you know, Cliff is, he's running kind of second to Rick Dalton. You know, Brad Pitt wins Best Supporting Actor. In the book, they're like even characters. Like Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are even. And it's so cool. That was the my the f- most fun part of it for me was Cliff Booth. Like you learn that he's a huge movie buff. And you I learned later that this is just like Tarantino be, get, having an excuse to like write reviews for European cinema because he's writing them through Cliff. And I got a big kick out of that. That's awesome. Yeah. If you're a fan of the Tarantino monologue, there are some great ones in here. There's just great stories. And this most importantly, this book is not a transcription of the movie certain scenes are out of order there's way more depth to the novel because he has more space to do it it deviates from the movie in a few critical areas and i enjoyed all of them because you have the movie yeah i'm almost always gonna like the movie more because that's just how i'm wired there's few circumstances when i'm gonna prefer the book but and I'm, I still prefer this movie. Like, I'm going to enjoy watching the movie more than I'm going to enjoy, you know, rereading the book whenever I have time to do that. But, and again, this is just a great audiobook too, Jennifer Jason Lee. So it deviates and adds context to the movie in all the ways that you didn't even know you wanted. Way more info about Brandy, the dog. Like, it's, it's cool. It's very, very uh, cool. All right. Maybe that's an audiobook. Maybe uh, maybe it's I so would try fun my hand. because she puts so much that. work into it. Yeah, it's it's just a lot of fun. Like if you're listening to as many podcasts as I do, and if you come to the end of your podcast queue, like I was finding myself in COVID, like I was able to listen more podcasts in COVID and making the switch to audiobooks. Now my podcast queue like backs up, and I like that. Sometimes some days I'll just have you know podcast days, and it's fun. But a lot of days I just have audiobook days. So move on to this next one, which we covered this movie in in a lot of depth in our Stanley Kubrick episode. So, um, but we got to talk about the novelization of 2001 A Space Odyssey. We're going to talk about a few Kubrick films today. I haven't read all the books that his movies are based on. But yeah, the main reason I want to bring up 2001 is that they he wrote this, Arthur C. Clarke wrote this at the same time that they were writing the movie. And he's credited on the movie. 
This is just a really quick read, 256 pages, and a lot of fun if you love the movie as much as we do, because I do like the ambiguity of the movie a little better, which isn't to say the book like spells everything out, but it's fun to see the pure cinema of Kubrick's vision realized with just words on the page. And it definitely does add a little more context to the movie, which I appreciate. So it's just a fun read. I mean, you know, it took me decades to finally read it and I've always wanted to. So just trying to nudge people if they've always wanted to and haven't checked it out. And then another one I'm going to mention really quickly is Nicholas Pileggi's Casino, written in 1995. And he was writing this at, he was kind of racing to get this done before the movie. Like he was writing the screenplay with Scorsese at the same time. And I really love this book because for legal reasons, the movie had to purposely change a lot of details. Like I think they say the gangsters are from Kansas City and that's not where they were from in real life. Uh-huh. So it's cool to get all those facts. You see those in print and all the names are legit in the book. So that's just cool. I mean, it's a long movie. It's a long book, but it's really a very sweeping account about how the mob came to run Las Vegas. And I love that shit. So yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Casino. So my biggest question I have with all of these movies in particular is yes. like once the novelization comes, because obviously the book carries so much more. Does your relationship with just the movie change? Because now that you know this information, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it's it's in you, like you can't unlearn it. You can't not know it. Does that enhance the movie or is there something that you would like, you know what? I wish I didn't know that. Yeah, this is a this is a really good question and a fair one. I've never had that experience yet. I've been a little fearful to where like, oh, no book has ruined a movie for me. That's never happened in all my reading. So I'm able to separate and go, I get why Tarantino left some things obscure, but why But why he wants to talk about them in the novel. I still look at the movie as what it is. For instance, like I'm not going around, if people have just seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm not going around describing things from the book because that's not that person's experience. Like you got, you got to stay with the movie. 2001 explains a lot more than the movie does about the monoliths, about where things are coming from. And I'm still able to separate and go, that's why I said, like, I like the ambiguity of the movie more. So it's cool for me. I like to take that vision in. We're going to talk about one in particular that uh, some of these as we go into that are like, the movies are just completely different reads or the director is just like, I like this one little kernel of this book, but I'm going into my own vision. And you have to separate those. That's where some of these movies have gotten into trouble because people are just glued to the book and they want it to be the book. And sometimes directors and writers just use a book as a kernel of an idea and they run with it. I think this isn't even one of my lists, but like The Shining is a great example of that where Stephen King was like, fuck you, dude. Like, what are you doing to my book? And that's just clearly something Kubrick wanted to do. And again, I haven't even read that book. So that's like a bad example. That's one that's on my list to read. But um, I'm really curious to read that one. For that reason, to know that King wasn't a fan of it, of the movie. I've read The Shining, and yeah, there is, if you want a very clear depiction of the Stephen King book, then you need to look no further than the miniseries or the Mm made-for-TV movie with Mm -hmm. Steven Weber, because that was a beat-for-beat exact representation. And I remember that. But I got my issue with, see, I love Stephen King, but I always kind of feel that his movies always take a little bit of a departure from where they originally set out to be. I love his short short stories. Yeah, and we're going to talk about a few down the line. Oh, no, his short stories have been those, I mean, you can make an argument that like his novellas, that's been 
the best movies have been produced from those novellas. Shawshank, Stand By Me, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so now I know you've talked to me about this book, so I'm very excited to kind of bring this up because this is arguably the greatest movie ever made. So how does the book of The Godfather hold up with the movie? And, you know, again, it's like taking me decades to get to this point to read it, but I have also heard that... It's, you know, I mean, you know, it's based on one of the most popular movies ever made. So it's like, I just got to get to this. And this is going to bring us into our, our adaptations that kind of what you were just asking, like books that help give more context, help to add context to the movie. And I like that. So I did reference The Godfather, the book by Mario Puzo on, I think that was episode 40 when we were talking about John Gazelle and broke that down and how, I mean... The book is definitely more salacious than the film, a lot more. There's a lot of pages dedicated to Fredo's uh, Las Vegas lifestyle, which is full of debauchery. There's a lot dedicated to Johnny Fontaine and Lucy Mancini, who's the bridesmaid that Sonny sleeps with in the beginning of the movie. A lot of that is very, I would say, salacious. And I think those are things that Coppola wisely, in my opinion, chose to withheld. And that's like reading that stuff. I just kind of laugh and I'm like, oh oh boy, this is okay. I appreciate the cuts that were made here. The biggest difference that I found in the book that was really jarring and made me really, really happy that I had seen the movie first is that Puzo introduces critical information in very different ways than the movie. For instance, the best example I can think of is that in the book, Michael and Kay are walking on the street and they spot a newspaper headline that says Vito Corleone has been shot. And then in the book, we go to the murder attempt. In the movie, the murder attempt happens first and then we see them discover the newspaper. That is what I'm talking about. Like, it's all just a difference in style. That happens a few times. I don't want to say every every way it happens, but I found that to be very interesting. That that's one of the, like this grand two-year experiment I've been on about reading all these books is I like spotting those differences and I like going I like reading The Godfather and thinking of Coppola just pouring over it and like dedicating so much of himself to it and making these cuts and then going oh, okay we just we got to get rid of his entire background and I mean then 2 years later putting that in Godfather part two. Like it's real. I love seeing the editor there. Now, sometimes we'll get to some down the line. They make edits. The filmmaker does that. I just don't understand. And I'm like, how the hell do you not include that? That's silly. But the Godfather is definitely like a more like a paperback pulp book than the movie set out to be. The movie's far more acclaimed than the novel, but that's fine. Damn. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So now we're moving on to a movie that I can't even watch because it upsets me so much. <laughs> it's a tough one. And we referenced this one in our John Cassavetes episode because the movie stars John Cassavetes. So talk to me about Rosemary's Baby yeah. by Ira Levin. <laughs> Rosemary's Baby, written in 1967. I cannot imagine people reading this without a movie existing. Like, with the, it must have been terrifying. Like, in some ways, the book the book actually is more disturbing than the movie because you're creating your own vision for it. And yeah. like when they're described, when you get to that end, which is really, really effective in the book, like it's creepier than it is in the movie. And Polanski handled it really well. And the movie's iconic for a lot of the ways he did handle it. But you know, books like this made me really wish that almost like in in a you know sub-universe that I hadn't seen the movie, because the whole time I'm reading the book, I just have na 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 
Santa, like the theme from the movie. Uh, my yeah, head this is same my problem the, that I have. Yeah, same with the Godfather. But I don't, I don't let it bother me. But you, again, like I know what I'm doing here. I know that I've seen all of these movies. I very intentionally. It doesn't bother me to have someone else's, you know, vision in there. And again, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. always really, it's always really fun to see. You know, characters are often like the character types are a lot different in novels than they are in the in the movies for whatever casting reasons like Sonny and the Godfather is, has a different physical build than James Conn does. And I just, I just love, I always love that stuff. But yeah, Rosemary's baby. If you like the movie, it is an incredibly effective read. I promise. <laughs> and I read that one because of Brady Sinellis. Cause he recommends Ira Levin a lot on his podcast. So that's oh. why I went to him. What else has Ira Levin done? I haven't read another Ira Levin book yet, but he did like a kiss before dying. It's a great Film noir. He did. Um, he wrote Stepford Wives, The Boys from Brazil, oh, wow. Nazi Hunter movie. Yeah, and then he wrote Son of Rosemary, which is apparently a sequel to <laughs> Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby. Yes, which I have I mean, not it makes read. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, Son of. That's a terrible title. Yeah, I think could have done better, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for this next one. This yeah. is very exciting because I've always wanted to read this book because right. I'm such a fan of the movie. And we're talking about uh, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. And purely just for the language that the movie captures to be able to read this, it must be a, 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 an unbelievable experience. It's a very quick read. It's 176 pages, but... That is the most difficult part. Like, if I hadn't yeah. seen this movie, I don't know if I would have known what the hell they were saying. I, I wouldn't have had yeah. context for that slang. And, you know, maybe a lot of people didn't. And then the movie came out and they're like, oh, okay, I get it now. And all that slang is there. And it's kind of genius that Kubrick decided to leave all that in. And um, you asked me a question before, like, could it, like, could a book ruin a movie or movie ruin a book or something? This is the best example of it okay. because I, I promise I'm not going to spoil anything, but we spent a large part of episode 35, our Stanley Kubrick episode, a large part of our Clockwork Orange remarks debating what the end of this movie means. Now, if you want to know what Burgess meant by that ending, you can read the book because I didn't know this, but there is a final chapter, chapter 21, that Kubrick omitted entirely. Wow. Kubrick, the, the book, where the book ends at chapter 20, that's the end of Kubrick's film. And Kubrick did not very obviously, very intentionally, did not include chapter 21. And I am glad because it makes, it makes for a far more interesting film. But it's cool to see how that story played out. Now, with all that said, because I know anthony burge's conclusion to a clockwork orange that doesn't mean that it is stanley kubrick's conclusion to a clockwork orange and i am able to separate the two so if i had read the book and you hadn't and we were recording our kubrick episode and you're like man what does that ending mean what does that ending mean i would not go oh here's what it means i wouldn't say that because burgess wrote it i would go yeah i don't know the way that he ended it makes it so ambiguous and that's what makes yep. it so cool i get that that you know can it can ruin some stuff for people but one of the very first times i did this that i saw a movie i loved and i didn't really understand all of it and i realized it was based on a book so i scurried to the book to try to understand it that was american psycho because the way that movie ends, uh. I'm like, where's the ambiguity in this? And you go read the book. This isn't a spoiler alert. 
but it's more ambiguous. So I was like, God yeah, damn it. Yep. It's like, I thought I was yep. going to get some conclusion and there is no catharsis. This is not an exit. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to go back to a clockwork orange to see any context that's added in, you know, the violence is definitely uh, more brutal in the book. Violence is usually more brutal. That's certainly true of the next a uh, few books I'm going to talk about here, but um, yeah, great read. It goes very fast. 176 pages is a insanely quick read. Yeah, that's very fast. I could do that. <laughs> All right. So we talk a little bit about this movie in our um, podcast leading up to the Oscars this past year, because this is a movie that um, we both weren't really a big fans of the remake, but bigger fans of the original. So this is based off of a book from 1946, Nightmare Alley. Nightmare Alley, yeah. Well, first, let's start with that aspect because I was hanging out with my dad all day yesterday. We actually saw Giant on the big screen. Three hours and 26 minutes. George Stevens presents Giant. Great to see James Dean on a big screen. Anyhow, we were talking about Nightmare Alley because this was my dad's favorite movie of 2021. Like, he loved it. And for me, I, well, for me, the whole, that movie w- clicked into place in a far better way for me, seeing it in black and white. Black and, and white. when he released that black and white version, I, I mean, I just thought that was great. But, but going back to the novel, like there are things in the novel in chapter two that you cannot put in a 1947 movie. You just, there's no way it's a, it's a far more sexually explicit book and even Guillermo del Toro didn't put some of the frankest stuff from the book in his movie, but his movie is definitely a more loyal adaptation of the book. That's that's just true because you can do more on film in 2021 that you could. There are certain things about that 2021 movie that just like like we talked about the reveal, the big scheme at the end with Rooney Mara and Richard Jenkins that the way that he pulled that off, I really didn't think it worked as effectively as the original movie and certainly not in the book. That's something that's like almost better in a book because it's you're kind of watching the movie and you're like, is this guy really that deluded where he thinks he's like seeing the ghost of like his daughter or something? Uh-huh. Like, is this like real? But in the book, it they can really convince you a little a little better. But um, I am a huge fan of that original movie. So that's that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to Nightmare Alley. But, you know, I read this book shortly after like two weeks after I saw Guillermo del Toro's remake in the theater. And I just had a Nightmare Alley like month. I like became obsessed with the original for a little bit. Saw del Toro's version twice in color, then in black and white, read the book, all that shit. You know, it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we'll move on to a movie that um, we cannot express our love enough for. We, we, this is one of our favorite movies of 2018 of You Were Never Really Here by Jonathan Ames, who I love Jonathan Ames. Yeah. And I I can't believe with his, the way that I know Jonathan Ames, I was shocked to find out that he wrote this mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. because he comes from a world of comedy. Right. I've read his short stories. I've read one of his novels, and I'm a giant fan of Bored to Death, which is the show that he had on HBO. <laughs> um, so... I love that show. Don't laugh. It's a great that, show. It's a, the, all right. The, the mission statement of that show is that incest is okay. Oh, that brother well, and sister I mean, incest is okay. That That's so fucking I, weird. It's not, I can't I believe HBO let him air that. Like, it's just, it's so weird. I wouldn't weird. say it's the mission statement of the show. It's just, yeah, it's something that happens <laughs> in it. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's like yeah, I'll give you the that. Main but statement. All right, keep going. It's just a weird show. It's a funny ass show. It's a weird it's a show. Very it's a funny weird. show. And yes, it goes in that, but he's a weird fucking guy. He well, uh, is a yes, very yes. yes. So so that leads us. So <laughs> what is it like reading this book? So everything you just said was my experience as well. Like Bored to Death was my introduction to him, and I knew him as a comedy guy. I didn't even realize this was like the same Jonathan Ames. I mean, when I saw the movie, like we saw the movie together and I saw it, I'm like, is that the same guy? So this is one where it was just wanted to read it because it's less than a hundred pages. So this thing is lean, 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 like how the movie, you know, 90 minutes long and Lynn Ramsey is like cutting, cutting, cutting those really quick cuts. This is one, you know, again, we're still in this like added context section. That's why I wanted to read this because, you know, you see, you were never really here. And you see Joaquin Phoenix for like, uh, what, like 20 frames in an FBI hat. And you're like, what the fuck was that? And a lot of the fun of that movie is figuring it out for yourself and putting the puzzle pieces together. And the book is not like, you know, in 100 pages, he's he's being very sparse. But you definitely get a little more context into why this guy, why Joe is the way he is, into that horrific childhood that you're just seeing glimpses of. It's really cool. It's I mean, this is I read this and like you can read, you know, it was like 90 minutes. It just cruised by. It's a very, very quick read. Highly. I mean, I really, really suggest it. But yeah, definitely uh, a strange dude, Jonathan Ames, but a very good writer. So this is a good question. Like, which do you prefer? Oh, the, I'm of uh, this this particular example. I know you already said you were a movie guy. Yeah, but. no, but I'm almost always going to say the movie. I actually don't even know if there's one example here where I could because when we're talking about the movie, we get that Johnny Greenwood score. So now I have Lynn yeah, Ramsey's yeah, yeah. very, very fuck withery editing where she's like messing with us. Like, can you track this? You get Johnny Greenwood score and then you get Joaquin Phoenix's like performance where he's gained all this weight and you're like, holy shit, this dude can kick ass. And yeah, I, I mean that that's my favorite movie of 2018. Like I, I, you know, I actually am due for a rewatch of that. I really, really love that movie. It was just really cool. This is one of the best like quick reads that I've done in the past few years, being able to have more context. So I feel more complete at now having read the book, but it doesn't, it really doesn't take away from the movie. I get, if anything, I'm like, all right, I get why you are doing that quick cutting. I get it. But it's just cool to see it explained a little more, you know? Yeah, which is true of the next movie, which was Leaving Las Vegas by John O'Brien. And this was written in 1990. This is just one of my absolute favorite movies released in 1995 starring Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, including our favorite films of 1995. And this is an interesting book because the narrative is split between Sarah and Ben. And the book is almost Sarah's book. And it kind of led me to view the movie in a different way. And I'm like, this kind of is Sarah's movie. Like she's in the therapist office talking like, Oh, so it it helped kind of recontextualize the movie for me in a way. And it was, yeah, it's really good. It's, um, you know, John O'Brien died by suicide shortly after, shortly after this book was released. So it's his dad said the book was like his suicide note, essentially. So it was kind of, you know, you're reading it with all that going on too. Yeah. Yeah. It's good though. Do you think that Nicholas, like how much, how much do you feel like without knowing too much of like that Nicholas Cage process? that Nicolas Cage took from the book or just created himself with that performance? I have to imagine he treated the book in part like a Bible because there's so many similarities to it. And 
again, if you just want that added context, like an actor not reading that source book, I would really think you'd want to. Maybe some make the active decision to not to, but yeah, you get to know Ben Sanderson better in the book. So I bet he was pouring over it. All right, so now we're moving on to a book that is one of my all-time favorite movies, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's all right there in that text. This is a lean, lean, lean book, and I really, I had read this before when I was younger, and it's a lot of fun. This might be one that I like more than the movie, almost, because I think- Oh, see, this is why. (laughs) Yeah. I think this thing just cruises along, and I do think the movie can lose, I mean- to keep up that steam throughout, like it's a lot, it's a lot to pro to like digest as a movie. But I also think I know this is one that people tried for years to do. And I don't think there's anyone else, but Terry Gilliam who could have done this and him, Johnny Depp, Benicio del Toro. I mean, it coming together. It's like, they really, it took that long, like 25 years for all that to come together for this book to be realized into a crazy movie but this is something that i like as much as the movie i think this book is fantastic if if i had read this book first this would have been a life-changing thing i think because what i fell in love with with the movie was the language was mm-hmm. the the complete you know absurdity of everything in these characters and so to see them put on screen in that way All I could see reading the book is the movie because it it had been laid out for me in such a way where I'm like, why am I even reading this when I could just be watching it and getting the exact same? Because it is a beat for beat like transcription of the movie of the book. But there is that one sequence in there where um, you just hear the uh, ramblings of the uh, tape recorder. Yeah, it goes on for like four pages. It's so funny, and that's something that you just can't put on film. Really, like too much. Yeah, it'd be too much. Too much. But that I think is the most effective thing coming from the perspective of being so attached to the movie. I think that's the one part of the book that I think is actually the coolest thing is that that part. One of the things that makes Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas the movie work, but makes the Rum Diary not work, is that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you retain the language. You have Hunter S. Thompson's brilliant language. The book and the movie start the exact same way. We're in Barstow, over the edge of the desert where the drugs began to take hold. Like, if you have that good of language, just stick with it. Stick with the language. Stick with Thompson's language. It's perfect. The the Rum Diary was such a mis... Like, everything about that movie was just... Off. I agree. It, was, I agree. it just missed it completely. And they even left out the best part of the book. And that's the opening monologue of of him getting to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Oh, God, exactly. Exactly. And that's those are the things I don't understand when I'm watching the movie. And I'm like, but why? You got the rights to it. You got Johnny Depp back. Like, why not include blank or blank? Well, yep. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's the best part of the book, even. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. The, the next movie yeah. is... Uh, the movie is all an exercise in what not to include. <laughs> yes, but this is a great, I'm so excited to talk about this because this is in my top 10 favorite movies of all time, and it is my number one favorite book of all time. It's an ingenious book. We're talking about Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. Yes, released to much controversy in 1991. It was dropped by his first publisher, picked up by another publisher. Um, Widely misunderstood book when it came out. I think it has aged 
let me be careful here. Yeah, be careful. Um, the intention of it is aged very well because what yes. he was going after is it's much more clearly communicated now that um, even some things in the book have like happened in real life and all the references to Trump all the time. But the whole time you're reading it, and of course I saw the movie first because of you know my age, and but I'm people must have been like, how the fuck are you ever going to turn this into a movie? How is this going to be possible? Let's just look at it in that. He's just talking about people's suits and what they're eating and what they're wearing and what drugs are in their system so much. I mean, there's a long chapter. One of the most entertaining chapters of the book is Patrick Bateman on the phone with a few of his friends arguing about where they're going to eat at dinner. And they argue so long and yeah. so much that reservations are just done. Like it's like 10, yeah. 30, 11. And it's time for Letterman, baby. Like you've argued for four hours that you just, the moment is past and how are you going to put that on screen? There's that. And then, of course, what are you going to do with all this violence? Oof. This is so intense. But like I always say, the violence is very explicit in the book, as is the sexuality. There is not, not as much of it as people like to remember. There just quite simply isn't. And the way that he writes his sex and violence was so relevatory because he yes. puts no emotion into it he just describes action that's it so like when a knife goes in here or a coat hanger goes in there or whatever it is it's just action it's just literally it's like a court transcription that's how it reads and taking that emotion out of it is what makes it work it's what makes it so memorable so mary heron like turning this into a movie it's it's such a masterful movie adaptation yes. based on what she couldn't include. And what I always like to tell people, because if people haven't read the book, I'm like, you know that phone call he makes to his lawyer at the end of the movie? Yeah. yeah. All that shit's in the book. So <laughs> if you want, you know, I even ate some of their brains. It's just all there. But also the book is like, so I, I'm in a cool journey right now, a cool path. I'm rereading all of his novels. And I yeah. just finished this literally two days ago. Started, I'm doing it my own way. I started with Less Than Zero, but then I immediately jumped to that sequel, Imperial Bedrooms, which was a great way to do it. And now I go, I've gone back and I'm doing them all in order. So I've done Rules of Attraction done American Psycho, and now I'm reading, rereading The Informers and, you know, going to take it all the way to the end. Yep. And he's, I know he's our favorite author, and he's definitely my favorite author because he helped, he helped me realize that I wanted to be a writer. And the way that he writes and communicates, I think yeah. he is so fucking funny. And just the disconnect that the characters are in this, the way everyone gets everyone's names wrong all the time, which is realized so well in the movie. I bought this book like a week after I saw the movie, hoping to get some more context and nope. And it, it was just, it was a lot of fun rereading it now, the older that I am. I get so many more of the references that I just didn't get before. And I'm like, oh, I know what that is now. This is such a good movie adaptation and such a good book. It was so fun to reread it. And it does for me the complete opposite of what Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas does, where I, all I'm seeing in my head when I'm reading the book is the movie. Mm -hmm. But when I'm reading American Psycho, because there's just so much more to it. Yeah. I, yeah. But I do see Christian Bale in my head when I was reading it. Yeah, I did here. have him. But there's so much more going on in the book that I was able just to imaginarily place him mm -hmm. in these situations and it comes alive. And then because it's in such a different order, when we're seeing scenes that we know from the movie, it's just, it, it, it's refreshing. It's not, it's not a carbon copy. It's a, it's a fucking great adaptation though. It might be my favorite adaptation from a book to a movie ever because Mary Heron got everything about the book 
that you want to get and left out the things that you don't need. But when you read the book, it just enhances everything so much better. Yeah, she got the humor of it. It was really smart to latch onto the humor and not make it really overt. But like you said, when you saw it at like Hollywood Forever Cemetery and people are laughing along, it's like, yeah, the intention of the book and the intention of the film is satire. That is the whole point. It is a dark satire and it goes dark places, but it is all a reflection of just who these people are and the culture that Ellis himself was just like in at the time with these stockbrokers and Wall Street guys. It's so funny reading the book and all that stuff with like Huey Lewis, Whitney Houston, you know, (laughs) Phil Collins, all those long chapters. You're like, how could you possibly put that in a movie? And the way they put those organically in the movie is like perfect. It's one of the things that makes it so funny. That's her, Mary Heron, really getting the humor of it. Because it's not funny in the novel. You have to make the choice to laugh. I imagine a lot of people are like, why is there 20 pages on like Huey Lewis in the news here? What the fuck is this? But then, yeah, I mean, in the movie, it's so funny the way in the circumstance it's done in. But yes, very, very good. One of my favorite, you know, adaptations as well, certainly. And one of my favorite adaptations is a book that I've read more than any other book I think that we're going to about talk about. And that's The Exorcist. You've never read this fucking book, you <laughs> fucking liar. Such an asshole, I could tell. Set me up. Only seen the movie once. Recently. Shithead. Great I, book. I read the book on the steps. Yeah. <laughs> Take you a long time. It's kind of big. William Peter Blatty, you know, he won an Oscar for adapting it into a movie, which is really, really cool. The movie is great, as everyone knows. Um, And now we're kind of venturing into a different section of like the most loyal movies to the book, the Ah. ones that really feel like you could have just plucked this out and put it right on here, which isn't to speak poor of the book or the movie, but it just means that like the way everything worked out, they really seem like pretty close transcriptions. And The Exorcist is just, you know, it's kind of like the Godfather here. There are probably a lot of people listening to this who have read The Exorcist and they're like, yeah, no doubt, it's a good book. (laughs) Like, yes, of course it is. But it was just fun for me to finally get to it. That's all. It's creepier than shit. And yeah, really well done. And I love, um, you know, Father Karras and that. It's just, I love that character so much. I love the way he played him. So it's a lot of fun to, um, you know, have deeper dives into that as well. And uh, this next book, uh, I've read No Country for Old Men, uh, by Cormac McCarthy. And the thing that I love the most about the book that the movie gets right is in the book, you don't really know the names of these three characters. You you get mm-hmm. to know them, but the movie, the, the book is sectioned off. So there'll be these breaks, not chapter breaks, but just breaks in the page where it'll just pick up. There won't be any clue really to knowing whose story we're reading yeah. until enough of the actions that they are have done let us know, oh, we must be talking about Sugar because yes. something happens that only he would do. And that's such a unique way of, a visceral and primal way of getting us in touch with character. Well, that is my biggest issue with a lot of novels or just book fiction, nonfiction that I read is a lack of form. Because a lot of stuff, especially a lot of millennial authors, it's just, you know, third person narrative and they're describing everything. The, na- the author, the narrator, narrator has free reign to describe whatever they want. And there's 
There's not a lot of style or form in that. And yeah, a lot of character names all the time. Cormac McCarthy is just one of the best stylists of the form. And that is one thing that makes it so cool when you're reading it. Because you're like, oh, who am I with now? And yeah, you have to like actively follow along. All that being said... The book goes, I mean, almost scene for scene, like in the yeah. order of the movie. And it's just so cool. I mean, Scott Rudin, movie producer, he bought the film rights to this. I think, I don't even know if McCarthy had finished writing yet. It might have been like in galleys, like not even, it definitely was not in print yet because by August 2005, the Coens had already agreed to write and direct it. And, you know, they win screenplay director picture because of this adaptation. And it's a great, great movie. And everything they decided to omit is perfect because the book you get a lot more dialogue from Shigur and a lot more explanation as to not necessarily why he's doing it but like his reasoning for it a lot you know just that those great Cormac McCarthy philosophical diatribes where they're they're just going on and on and I like that Javier Bardem really doesn't speak much in the movie and that's just you know that's great it but every little cut you know there's there's like a hitchhiker in the book that they leave out of the movie. That's it's all good, but it's just um it's a very fast read too. Like The Road or Blood Meridian are more challenging McCarthy novels, but No Country for Old Men. It just reads like you're reading a screenplay. Genuinely. It does, yeah. This next one's really interesting for a really specific reason. And this is a continuing our love for Bretty Sinellis. I I need to reread this one uh because every time I see it on my bookshelf, I'm like, "Oof, I I got to pull for it." And that's uh, The Rules of Attraction. Ellis's second novel, crazy to think that he was like 24 when he was writing this, when he wrote it. It's just absolutely insane. It's worth mentioning this one because this is Ellis's favorite movie adaptation yep. of his work. He thinks The Rules of Attraction got closest to his tone, his style. And again, I haven't had time to rewatch American Psycho, but I finished Rules of Attraction and watched the movie right after. And I love this movie. I love, love what it. Roger Avery did with it. And... That Victor sequence of Kit Perdue oh. just roaming around Europe is one of the best things Brady Sinellis has ever written. Very interesting. It happened so early in the novel. In the novel, it's like yeah. Really, really early on. But where it's timed is perfect for the movie. One thing that makes this book so fun that the movie captured so well is how people are often mishearing each other. Yeah. You know, like quesadilla, quesadilla, that type of stuff, and how like you see Paul like falling in love with Sean Bateman in the movie and in the book, like, and they're spending all this time together and doing all this stuff. And they, they spent this weekend together. And then you go to Sean's chapter and Sean was just like smoking pot all weekend. He wasn't hanging out with Paul. So like, Who's telling the truth here? Who's yeah. lying? I love those unreliable narrators. Ellis is like the king of the unreliable narrator to me. And I love that they're everyone just perpetually full of shit. Yes. And the way scenes of extreme circumstance when he will go from first person to third person. So like he does this in American Psycho when like he when Patrick Bateman is committing there are a few instances like a horrific act of violence in the same sentence he'll go and I pulled up the knife and then Patrick brings the knife down like into his back you know yeah disassociation happening where he's cutting to third person. I love that form. Illis is like He's obsessed with style and form. He cares more about that than story. And that's why he's my favorite author to read. But yeah, great, great adaptation. Just a really fun, easy read. All right. So now we're going into what we were talking about a little bit earlier with Stephen King. So you got Mm -hmm. three books here that you want to talk about. Let's go. One of the most loyal adaptations of his work, without question, is The Mist. 
And this is a movie that I have a soft spot for. I really I like just the carnage and the pessimism and the yep. uh, God damn it allness of the movie. And that's all in the book. And yeah. It's like, it's really, it's a really, really good read and short novella. And I really think that's a great adaptation of his work as is Misery, which I've referenced on this podcast before. That's a really, really good book. Interesting that he spends really long chapters in the misery storyline, like the book that the James Conn character is writing. That's kind of stuff where it's like so good to omit that from the movie. Like, yeah. Can you imagine that movie cutting to like these uh, kind of envisions of what he's writing? It would be so lame. They don't need to. So that's that's all stuff that, you know, kind of breeze over when you're reading. But that's a great one. And then I don't know why I just wanted to pick a random one, not one that was like crazy popular, both in movie and book form. But I went with Dolores Claiborne. I brought this up on some podcast we were talking about because I really like the movie. I like David Strathairn in it. And this is cool because the whole novel is just one long police confession. And it's the character that Kathy Bates would play in the in the movie. But it, that's it's really interesting. You know, King has, has a way of writing, as I'm learning, that can be very digestible. Like just one yep. woman giving a police confession is a is a very succinct way to tell a story. You're like putting yourself in this nice little narrative box. and. Which so other than The Shining, what have you read? I've read more by King as well. Like I, Stephen King is probably the author that I've read the most. I was reading yeah. Stephen King because my mom was such a big Stephen King fan. So I was reading Stephen King when I was a kid. Again, books that I probably shouldn't be reading. Yeah, I love it. I like. I read The Stand. That was that was crazy to read because I didn't. I think I read that in age where I didn't really understand a lot of certain things about that. Yeah. I got to read that. I've always felt that his short stories are some of his best work. Uh, there's a, oh man, I'll have to, I'll have to find it. There's a uh, compilation that I have because he's got a bunch. So, because the, the man writes more than any other author, I think. Oh God, he never stops. He talks about it. He says that he basically, his whole entire goal is he writes six pages a day. Oh my Doesn't God. Doesn't matter <laughs> like what they are, but they're six pages a day. And, but he's like, but that's every single day. And he goes, if you do six pages a day, you do that for like three months, all of a sudden you've got a book. But I don't know what he accounts into like redraft, like, you know, second drafts and all that. But anyways, there's this one short story you would really love. It's only like 20 pages long. And it's all about this guy who was just in an accident and he's been pronounced, he's been pronounced dead, Ooh. but he's alive, but he can't move. So they're putting him on the gurney in the ambulance. They're putting the body bag, unzipping him. But he's having all these thoughts and he's trying to like get people to know that he's alive. And then what's it called? Oh, I can't. I, it's it's in the compilation of the series that I'm talking about. Here, let me see if I find it. Yeah, he's got a compilation, different seasons that I, I've read. And it's like apt pupils on there. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which the Shawshank Redemption was based on. And the body, which was turned into Stand By Me. That's Those are fun reads. But yeah, what's the one you're talking about? So this is off of a uh, compilation of short stories called Everything's Eventual. This has actually uh, got the short story of 1408 with the uh, oh, yeah. the great John Cusack. The short story is <laughs> called Autopsy Room 4. Ooh. It's just crazy, man. Like it's, I love it. I'm going to listen to it. The, the dude has just got such a vivid imagination. And what's great is that as horrifying as it is, it's not just shock value. Right. There are certain authors... That just write things to be extreme. This is not one of them. This it's it's great. It's only like twenty pages. I found a PDF and it's on my audiobook app, read by Oliver Platt, which is kind of cool. <laughs> oh, I love Oliver Platt. 
We'll get on to one of our final segments here. So this is a section. These are your favorite memoirs slash biographies. It's, you know, it's fun to see occasionally a memoir or biography turned into a movie. Sometimes it does not go well, but like just a lot I wanted additional context to. So I read like Wise Guy by Nicholas Pledgy, which was turned into Goodfellas. Donnie Brasco by Joseph D. Pistone, which oh. was turned. That was like. That gave a lot of context lot to the of context. Um, movie, which helped a lot. I've read that. Oh, you have? Yep, yeah, it yep. was really, really good. Um, I love Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. I love that movie so much. I've watched it so many times. I Heard You Paint Houses gave, oh my God, it helped me understand just so much really about like the mob union labor movement thing, how the mob came to control the unions. It's a really, really cool read if you're interested in that part of history, which I am. Always thought that that would have been a way better title than The Irishman. They wouldn't let him do it, which is why, that's why in the beginning of The Irishman, he has those title cards. I heard you paint houses because it's kind of like a fuck you to Netflix. Like it's Love it's it. a much better title, much especially because then Al Pacino would have put it in context right there. Yep. Heard you paint houses. Um, next one is uh, not a joyful book. It's 12 years a slave <laughs> written in 1853 by Solomon Northup as told to David Wilson. Just want to, uh, it's interesting where McQueen chose to end his film. I'll put it that way. Cause the book doesn't end there. And you know, it's, it's just pretty widely considered that he was captured again, perhaps by the people oh. who had him in captivity and then killed because he was only free again for like four years. And I'm glad the movie ends where it ends. But yeah, it's it's not a it's not a happy ending. The Disaster Artist, I wanted to read that because of the movie it's based on. And I heard that, like, I was really interested in hearing Greg Sestro talk about the making of the room. That's what I was more interested in anything. And seeing that, like, just hearing, I, I mean, that just sounds crazy. The movie did, like, a decent job of it, and Franco did a decent job. But this is, like, it's a fucking nuts book. And how this dude, like, no idea where all of his money came from. I don't know. It's a very quick but entertaining read, certainly. Next two are really, really intense. If you like The Wire by David Simon, the HBO show, the early genesis of that was like a six episode miniseries called The Corner, which David Simon wrote with Ed Burns, who also helped out on The Wire. That is an intense book. It is very long, but it is about how the drug war is not winning in Baltimore and how the drug war is, in fact, damaging Baltimore instead of doing any good. An offshoot of that several decades later is We Own This City, which I've uh, talked about because HBO adapted that into a fantastic and horrifying miniseries that came out very recently. The book by Justin Fenton, it's a really, really good book. I cannot believe it's true. I cannot believe these fucking cops just got away with this for so long. Um, Molly's Game, we both liked that movie, so I wanted to go back and read the book. Oh, yeah. Very good. There's... um. That book's better than the movie, actually. Wow. That's a good example. There is, there's a little too, when I read the book, I went, oh, there's like a lot of Sorkinisms in that movie. Like a lot that maybe 
don't need to be there. I mean, there's just, he put a lot of himself into it that she's not going that in depth about like her skiing accident. And like when you fall at this angle at all, that's all Sorkin. So I, <laughs> I like that book, but I, I like that movie, but I think I probably liked the book. And then one that I just, I've been wanting, I've been so curious about was the orchid thief by Susan Orlean, which has turned into adaptation. I was just so curious. Like, what is this book actually like? And it's just about, you know, the flowers and, John LaRoche and stuff. It has nothing to do with Charlie Kaufman and his fake twin brother. Oh my God. <laughs> but reading that book, I'm like, I, I'm reading that book and then envisioning Charlie Kaufman reading this and going like, just flipping out how Nicolas Cage does in the movie, you know, like so nervous about it. And I can't believe that that all worked and made this profoundly strange movie from this pretty typical ordinary book you know it makes <laughs> so the, cool it makes the title of adaptation seem a lot cooler now because if oh, that's yeah. what he adapted it from it's like here's this mm -hmm. kind of like relatively boring book and here's my adaptation of it i just want it to be about flowers <laughs> so good the movie's way better though for sure and that rounds out our memoirs and biographies i like those books some more than others but if speaking of books that are better we have to talk about a movie that uh, we championed for all of 2021, being very facetious, <laughs> uh, fucker. When we're talking about the power of the dog, this book is way, way better than the movie uh, to me. I wasn't the biggest fan of the movie. Um, there's very, very little homosexuality suggested in the novel, so interesting to see that be. Um, some might say exploited, some might say just realized, but whatever word you want to use in the movie. But it's not as big of a part of the book as it is of the movie. But yeah, I wanted to put that here because reading this book, I read it after I saw the movie, it actually made me like the movie less. So here we go. We found one. This is one we've been looking for. Like, did it dilute it? It did. It made because the book is so much clearer about things. And the movie just made so many leaps in like convenience that I went. Uh, it made perfect sense in the book. I don't think that was communicated clearly in the movie, at least not to me. She was slow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And then the next one, because we've talked about one author in particular a lot on this podcast, I wanted to talk about two yep. supremely poor adaptations of his work uh, based on very, very good books. Yes. And I have not seen... Um What's the Informers? What's the movie best stuff? 2009, Mickey Rourke, Kim Basinger, Brad Renfro. It's terrible. Oh, God, I don't even know it. Yeah, we'll talk. First off, we'll start with the 1985, Bret Easton Ellis' first book, Less Than Zero, which was a huge movie. And the thing is, is like, I actually find value in the movie. Mm -hmm. But if you are looking for the source material and what that really is, you have to read the book because the book is. It couldn't really be more different than the movie. The book is just a much better experience. Yeah, it's a one sitting read to me. Lesson Zero is just like a seminal book. I love it. I can't. It's insane to think he wrote it at the age he was in college, like as 19, 20, 21 year old. Um, the movie doesn't work for a few reasons. One, they everyone, the producers, the studio got nervous about it and made it. There, there's not even a line of dialogue or script from the novel in the movie yeah it has the same title somewhat loosely the same circumstance but they are nothing alike there is some value to be found in the movie robert downey jr as julian is a good performance yes. but it is nothing like the julian from the nothing. novel they're just they just have the same name ed lockman shot 
less than zero. It looks great. The colors of it are gorgeous. So there is value to be found in the movie, but it is completely separate from the book. Yep. The Brady Snell's book I'm on now, which is a collection of short stories, interconnected short stories, The Informers. And, you know, it's I totally forgot that in The Informers, one of the main characters is Tim Price, who is played by Justin Throw in American Psycho, the movie. And I forgot. And he's a big part of the book, too. And I forgot, like, it's so cool to read all of his books in order like this because he does repeat a lot of the same characters. I mean, yep. the biz- biggest example of this is Sean Bateman is the main character of Rules of Attraction, and then his older brother, Patrick, is the main character of American Psycho. That's the clearest connection. It's yeah, usually it's not that one. crystal clear, but it's always fun. But um, The Informers is a great collection of short stories that just made for a dog shit movie. And Illis has talked about this a lot on his podcast that they were trying, and the director just did not get the sensibility of it in the movie. I, I saw this movie once the only year I went to Sundance, and I it was the first movie I saw at Sundance. I was so fucking excited because it has, like, I don't even have the list in front of me, but uh, Mickey Rourke, Billy Bob Thornton, Kim Basinger, Brad Renfro, a young Amber Heard, really young. It, it has, like, a good influential cast, and the movie sucks. It yeah. just does not work. And I was so excited. And then I was so let down. Like, is Sundance going to suck? And that was that was one of the only, one of the few poor movies I saw uh, that, you know, long weekend. But yeah, not a good movie. Definitely a skippable movie. Do not skip that book. That book rocks. It's in between American Psycho and Glamorama, which I is my next illest book. And I'm so excited to reread because it's his longest and I haven't read it in... I only read it once. Yeah, I read it, but I that was, I think, my first book that I read from him, and I, I wasn't ready. It's so, it fucking goes there. It's really long. And then the main character of that is Victor from Rules of Attraction. So, yep. you know, again, that synchronicity, he's keeping it all together. But um, I had a few more that I didn't really know where to place. Have you ever read Fight Club? Did you ever read that? I can't stand Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, wow, I didn't expect that reaction. I can't either. I, I can't. I didn't know you were going to go there. No. I don't like him either. I don't, I don't like his writing style. It is baffling to me that he's compared to Brett Easton Ellis. I don't get it. Um, no. I didn't. That book did not do it for me. And I've read a, a number of his things. I've given like a lot of chances because I wanted to hop on the yep. train and get it. And Fight Club kind of cemented like, this isn't for me. Like the nope. movie is for me. Absolutely. But this isn't for me. Yeah. That's so I did not expect you to say that. I thought I was going to have to stand on this bridge all by myself. But yeah. Oh, that's no, I, w- I was hesitant when I was talking about the Stephen King autopsy number four, because the author I was avoiding talking about in my reference to shock value was Chuck Palahniuk. It's too shock value. It's yep. ego. It's like, I don't need, okay, dude, I get it. Brady Sanilis to me, uh, someone could probably make the argument that that's what he's going for too. I emphatically disagree. And I'm, I'm happy to have disagree. that conversation. Yeah. I'm happy to have that conversation. Just like Gaspar in a way. I don't, you know, sometimes he's going for shock. By and large, he's not. He has intention. Yep. Okay. So that was one that I read for the first time in like the last year and was like, okay, uh, Crash that, that based on the David Cronenberg movie, which is very, you know, salacious i was really interested to read that and i did and that that was something that was written in 1973 by jg ballard that, that's a hell of a book um wow psycho i never read that written by robert block in 1959 obviously turned into my favorite hitchcock film psycho definitely prefer the movie there but it was cool to read you know the uh the reveal at the end was still kept that's what i wanted to see like how is this author gonna hide this reveal from us yeah. and he did it really cool like just you know to, you know in that basement it was it was very well done 
And then my last book that I really just finished before my Bredesen Ellis binge here is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ah, I never yes. read it and absolutely loved it. And that um, that's a huge kind of deviation because that whole huge. book, as many people may know, is from the point of view of Chief, who's a character, an important character in the movie. But that's really cool that it's just about him. And then it was a slim read. Like it went by really fast. And I thought that was a very good adaptation of it. You know, just like... um. Brokeback Mountain, like that's a very short story. And that thing cruises by in the way they built that out to that movie is like breathtaking. It's really, really good. The way they added stuff, you know, usually movies have to chip away, take yeah. stuff out, but there's a few where they have to add stuff. And that's always fun when done well. There's also a play version of mm-hmm. One Flew of the Cuckoo's mm-hmm. Nest that is also vastly different, not vastly, but like different enough to where I, I look at those three and I'm like, there's wild differences amongst all three of those things. Okay, so since we started in a funny way, we're going to end in a funny way. We're going to go with, what are you reading? So it sounds like we're both reading things. You're taking like two and a half years to read your book. Fucking A. Um, <laughs> you're going to have to like go back and start from the beginning. You're going to like lap yourself. But yeah, let's go I, with I what are you much, reading right now? Like even though it's, a, it's a taking me a long, long time to read it, um, I'm reading Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. What do you think of it? Because I have not read this. It's amazing. I was told by an acting teacher that one day this book is going to come into my life Mm. and it's going to mean something. And I remember I was at Barnes & Noble. This is pre-pandemic. And I was flipping through books and all of a sudden the Fountainhead was like three books behind wherever I was reading. I just remembered thinking of my acting teacher. He's like, this book is going to find you one day. And I just immediately I looked at it and I go, well... There's no bigger sign than this because it showed up in a place it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> so that was the book that I bought. Took me a year to start it. <laughs> it's very, uh, very like me to do that. And then I started it. And yes, it's taken me a long time to get where I'm at. I'm almost done. And I've enjoyed every page of this book. It's incredible. Awesome. I've heard that review from a lot of people that it is, it can be like this life changing thing. So that's really cool. I should, yeah, you know, I got to sit down and do that. I've kind of, I've already been talking about what I am reading, which is the informers. And then I'm going to move to Glamorama and then Lunar Park, which I've only read once. And I love that Brady Snell's book. So I don't want to harp on any of those, but the next like big, thick novel I'm going to read is that my dad and I just saw Giant yesterday, and they were giving out programs. And, and on October 16th, on Sunday, that theater is playing A Place in the Sun. And it has uh-huh. a Q&A after with George Stevens' son, who's going to be there, George Stevens Jr. So we're going to that. So I was like, all right, that's a month and a half for me to read Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, which is what that movie's based on. But this is a long fucking book. We're near, it's like 900 pages. So if I want to get started. I got to start now. I got to burn through these Ellis books. I might have to honestly switch to an American tragedy, but that's going to be the next one I jump into. And I've always wanted to read the book that got adapted into A Place in the Sun. Yeah. I bet I finish an American tragedy before you finish Fountainhead. 100%. 100 <laughs> Damn it. It's not 100%. even fun when you just give in that quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there's just, there's no way. We talked about a lot today, and these were just like at random things that I've read over the past two years. This is certainly not like 
every book we've ever read that got turned into a movie, but I always want to know yours. We want to know what's what are some of your favorite books that got, I don't know, turned into bad movies or decent books that got turned into great movies. Engage with us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. But as always, thanks for listening and happy reading, nerds. <laughs>